0: Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw. As you can tell, I have a little bit of a cold, but hopefully my voice will hold out because I have the pleasure of having with me today Andrew Jarrell, who is one of our clinical pharmacy specialists. In fact, he is the clinical pharmacy specialist in our surgical ICU. Now, you may be wondering what happened to Rachel Kruer, who I did a couple episodes with. Rachel is another clinical pharmacy specialist. We have two main general surgical ICUs, and Rachel is the clinical pharmacy specialist in one, and Andrew is in the other. And while that may set them up to seem like they are um, doing battle, they actually are uh, both incredibly fantastic. And as far as I can tell, uh, either one provides expert advice at all times. I, I have them both on speed dial. And whenever I have a question, I just uh, try to get a hold of one of them as I'm desperate to figure out what to do with antibiotics. So Andrew, thank you for coming on the show. Welcome.
1: Thanks for the warm welcome, Jed, and I uh, appreciate the opportunity to be on your podcast.
0: Awesome. All right. So we are going to talk about antibiotic prophylaxis in surgery. So this is something that comes up all the time. As those of you in anesthesia or surgery know, we routinely give antibiotic prophylaxis before uh, incision and, uh, it comes up a lot. So we're going to talk to Andrew about the details of that, how to choose what we do, when to do it, what the timing is, and this should be really fantastic. So let's jump right in. Andrew, um, what's the point? Why do we do this? Uh, is it useful and, and what's going on with this whole antibiotic prophylaxis thing?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So a lot of times we get in a routine of doing something just because we do it, and so it's good to take a step back and think about why we're actually giving antibiotics and surgery routinely. Um, so, essentially, we're giving antibiotics to prevent surgical site infection. Obviously, there's morbidity and mortality associated with surgical site infection, and we have the added motivation of having a number of different societies that are monitoring the rates of surgical site infection at our different hospitals, and so it's important to keep a, an eye on that and do what we can to prevent it for those reasons. Surgical site infection is actually more common than you might think in the general surgery population. Rates are quoted to be between 2 and 5% for most surgical patients. Uh, But it can be as high as 20% for patients with higher risk procedures like colorectal, liver transplantation, that type of thing.
0: Yeah, so that's quite high. And that's with antibiotic prophylaxis?
1: That's even with antibiotic prophylaxis.
0: So we would imagine without it would be even higher. Exactly. So what plays a role in whether people develop a surgical site infection? What puts you at risk?
1: So there are a number of things that we do to prevent surgical site infection from occurring. Antibiotics are a big part of it, but also basic infection control, surgical technique, the duration of the procedure is a factor in the development of infection, instrument sterilization, and other preoperative preparation of the patient. And then things like temperature control, glycemic control, and things we can't control, such as the underlying medical conditions of the patient. All of these different factors play into the development of surgical site infection, and so we do what we can to affect all of these different factors, but antibiotics are certainly one thing that we can control, and we try to give the right antibiotics for, for that very reason.
0: Absolutely. All right, great. So. You mentioned that there are some guidelines out there to help us. Tell me more about that. What guidelines are there, and what do they say?
1: So the, the key guidelines that we reference for surgical site infection prevention with antibiotics are published by the American Society of Health System Pharmacists in combination with the Infectious Diseases Society of America, the Surgical Infection Society, and the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. So it was really a group effort to pull these guidelines together. They were last updated in 2013. And these are the primary guidelines that most institutions in the United States reference when looking at antibiotic choices perioperatively. Um, This is a great reference for agent selection, dosing, duration of therapy with antibiotics, has a lot of good information and background research related to the prevention of surgical site infection with antibiotics. One of the key points that the guidelines make is that while the guidelines are helpful in thinking about broad populations, the general population of general surgery patients, Locally developed references that include thoughts about local antibiograms, surgical infection rates at your institution, those things are really preferred um, to guide therapy at your specific institution. So while these guidelines are a good framework for developing your own guidelines at an institution, those institution-specific guidelines are really the preference.
0: Yeah, that sounds good. I have one of the big takeaways from the episode that Rachel and I did looking at bugs and drugs in the surgical ICU specifically was that... While there are also guidelines, it's hard to say, use this for this, because not only are there institution-specific antibiograms, but sometimes Rachel was saying there's even unit-specific antibiograms within one hospital, and so really important to find out what's going on locally.
1: That's exactly right. We've even talked about as an institution here at Hopkins uh, having some ICU specific antibiograms. I think we'll be moving in that direction relatively soon. Uh, We're not, not quite there yet. There are some institutions that are already doing this, and that's great information to have when you're talking about a very specific subpopulation of patients.
0: Great. So let's move on and talk about the timing of antibiotic administration. This is a big deal. We are being watched and our charts are being audited to make sure that we give antibiotics within, I believe, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe within one hour but, but before uh, surgical incision, uh, which is easy for something like ANCEF, which we can push, and harder for something like Flagyl or uh, Metronidazole, which we have to uh, drip in. Um, so it's, uh, it becomes a little issue with timing. Vancomycin is even a more difficult one at times because of how long it takes to go in. So Andrew, tell me about timing. How important is it? And what do we do with those medications like Vancomycin if we have to use them that we can't give quickly?
1: Yeah, great question. So, timing is is a key factor. The the core idea here is that the antibiotic needs to be present in the skin at the time of the incision, and so for that to happen, two things have to happen. The antibiotic has to actually be given, and then the antibiotic has to have time to penetrate into the skin. So, fortunately, we know with cephalosporins that for most cephalosporins, we're able to give them IV push, and so that allows us to quickly administer the antibiotics. The timing doesn't. Uh, T- turn out to be an issue for, for in that case. And the other advantage to cephalosporins is that they very quickly distribute into the skin. Um, and so from both an administration and a distribution standpoint, cephalosporins are ideal. Some of the other drugs you mentioned, metronidazole, are fluoroquinolones like ciprofloxacin, vancomycin. These drugs require a longer infusion time, uh, typically. And so typically you're looking at a 60-minute infusion time for those medications. The guidelines recommended starting administration of those medications as much as 120 minutes before incision time. That's not always practical, and fortunately there's a little bit of evidence that suggests that as long as 50% of those medications are administered at the time of the incision, there's enough to be adequately concentrated in the skin. And so probably starting those infusions as close as 30 minutes prior to incision is okay. We actually recommend that in our institutional guidelines. But know that you'll, you'll see a variety of different recommendations in terms of uh, when those should actually finish being given. Uh, but, but within 60 minutes of the incision is the goal for, for all drugs.
0: Okay, great. So let me ask you a few questions. So, one is I think this is an important point that, that you mentioned, which is that the goal is actually to get the antibiotic concentrated in the skin, not to have it in the blood so that if the bacteria gets in the blood, it then encounters the antibiotic. You actually want the antibiotic to make it into the skin itself out of the blood
1: exactly so most surgical site infections are really in that soft tissue on on the uh, on, at the skin level and so thinking about where the infection is most likely to occur on the skin you want to make sure that the drug is adequately concentrated there when we give things IV they're immediately at an adequate concentration to prevent infection in the blood uh, but as far as distribution into skin and other organs that takes a little bit more time for some medications
0: okay so ANCEF and other cephalosporins you said and you know I I always try to remember not to use trade names because I have had, I think I mentioned on a prior episode, uh, people in other countries have said to me, you know, I don't know what, for example, Versed is because it's not called Versed in Germany, for example. And so um, ANCEF is actually Cefazolin, is that right? That's right. Okay, so I'm going to do my best. Cefazolin. So Cefazolin and other cephalosporins... Uh, you said are very fast. They they can be pushed, uh, IV push, and then they uh, distribute to the skin very fast. So are we okay if we give it one minute before incision or or what, what is the ideal length of time?
1: So there's a mix of data out there, but some studies suggest that as soon as a minute to two minutes prior to incision, cephalosporins are able to adequately distribute into the skin. And so realistically for cephalosporins, you really can push it immediately prior to the incision and expect that Uh, you have an adequate concentration. There isn't as much data for things like vancomycin and metronidazole, and so that's part of the reason, in addition to the longer infusion time, that we give some additional time up front to administer the drug. But for cephalosporins, you really can administer it immediately before the incision.
0: Now, let's say at a hypothetical hospital, there was a uh, practice of routinely starting the metronidazole or the vancomycin, uh, you know, sort of five minutes before incision, we would think probably we were not getting adequate coverage. That's right. And so really those need to be started in the preoperative area if you're going to effectively get them in. Exactly. All right. Great. So what about dosing? Uh, You know, it's it's interesting. I um, believe, and I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that when I was a resident, which wasn't that long ago, we gave one gram of cefazolin, uh, as the basic for a normal weight person. And now we give two. So is that, uh, I'm interested to hear is, am I right? First of all, or am I remembering incorrectly? And, um, was that, did that change happen due to kind of resistance or, or we just have new data suggesting a higher dose is better. And then just tell me in general, kind of what do we think about when we think about dosing?
1: Yeah, so I I love this stuff. I I think that pharmacokinetics are really interesting, particularly in the surgical population, and kind of geek out on that a little bit. Uh, But you're right. Very recently, and still at at many institutions, Cefazolin is is likely frequently given as a one gram dose preoperatively. And in all honesty, for most patients, that's probably enough of a dose to achieve adequate therapeutic effect in the skin. But the problem is, in some of these surgical patients, in particular, we ha- we see a lot of larger volumes of distribution. So the larger volume distribution can occur for a few reasons in surgery. Volume resuscitation increases volume distribution. The inflammation related to surgery inclus- increases volume distribution. And so... When, when your volume distribution is increasing, you need to give a larger dose of antibiotic into that space in order to achieve adequate concentrations. So because we see elevated volume distribution in surgery, that's one reason for giving a larger dose of things like cefazolin, giving the two gram dose as opposed to the one gram dose. Now the other thing that plays into this thought process is the very forgiving nature of the pharmacokinetics of beta-lactam. So, when I say that, I'm, I'm, think, I'm talking about the therapeutic index or therapeutic window between where the drug begins to be effective and where it becomes toxic. So with beta-lactams, who are penicillins, cephalosporins, carbapenems, um, the, these drugs become effective and then actually have quite a wide window before you start to see toxicity with these agents. So you can actually afford to give a dose that is slightly in excess of the therapeutic effect because the, the antibiotic is so forgiving from a pharmacokinetic profile. So that's part of what plays into this decision. The third thing is is that particularly in the United States, we're seeing a lot of patients with obesity. And so as you start to think about uh, the average patient being a a larger size at baseline, that also has implications in terms of VD and the dose that we would want to give.
0: So here we give two grams to all um, adults over 40 kilos. And we give 3 grams if people are over 120 kilos. Is that right?
1: That's right. So so we use the 120-kilo cutoff, which is recommended in, in the guidelines that we were talking about at the beginning, uh, to step up to cefazolin 3 grams. We actually use cefoxitin 3 grams and cefotetan 3 grams in that patient population as well. Um, and so we, we use that cutoff to make that decision.
0: Now, uh, I have had a couple of times where I've had an adult... Um, who actually weighs less than 40 kilos. So I had an adult recently who weighed about 30 kilos. And am I correct that at that point we should be dosing by weight? That's right. So
1: the the patients that are of smaller size and 40 kilos is typically the cutoff that I use as well, we have to be a little bit more thoughtful about the balance of the effectiveness of the drug and the toxicity of the drug. And so your best strategy if you have someone that you're really concerned about, whether they're morbidly obese or uh, significantly underweight, would be to talk to pharmacy and or infectious diseases about specific concerns related to pharmacokinetics as a piece of advice i typically look at both the adult dosing and the pediatric dosing in that situation and use that to make an informed decision about what would be a reasonable dose in a small sized adult like a 35 kilogram adult
0: right and the pediatric dosing is what per kilo so the pediatric dosing of cefazolin is
1: 30 milligrams per kilogram okay
0: so in general uh for anyone under 40 kilos or so you could Theoretically, either use the pediatric dosing or, like you said, talk to your pharmacist and try to figure out the best dose. That's right. It's certainly going to be rare to have an adult less than uh, 40 kilos. All right. So um, let's talk about redosing because this certainly comes up. Um, how often should we be redosing uh, our antibiotics and are there factors other than just time that play into when we should be redosing?
1: Yeah. So the most significant consideration when you're thinking about redosing an antibiotic is the antibiotic half-life, and so if, if the half-life is relatively short, on the order of an hour or two, that's a drug that's going to require more frequent dosing, and so thinking about the half-life in conjunction with the expected length of the procedure, you'll come up with a decision as to whether you need to redose in the procedure. So, for example, cephalosporins in patients with normal renal function are typically recommended to be redosed Q4 hours ampicillin, sulbactam, in patients with normal renal function, are expected to be redosed every two hours. Um, Most other drugs won't require redosing just because of the longer half-life, so vancomycin has a long half-life, so redosing isn't typically necessary. However, vancomycin being used in a very long procedure, greater than eight hours, you would want to consider uh, redosing in that situation. The other thing to consider related to the half-life is the renal function of the patient, as I've kind of referenced. So in patients with a creatinine clearance less than 60 milliliters per minute, the clearance of drugs that are renally cleared is going to be decreased. And so whereas you might need to redose your cefazolin in a patient who uh, is in a six-hour procedure, typically if they have a impaired renal function, say creatinine clearance of 30 mLs per minute, you shouldn't need to redose your cefazolin in that situation.
0: Great. All right, so that's really helpful, and I would imagine if you have someone with poor renal function, it might be worthwhile talking to a pharmacist beforehand to try to kind of figure out if it is going to be, let's say, a 12-hour procedure. Do I need to redose my cef- cefazolin, and if so, when? I would
1: agree, but I'm a little biased. Yeah, absolutely. Well, <laughs> I, I will certainly be calling you the next time I have that situation.
0: All right, what about <clears throat> blood loss? Uh, we This comes up a lot where. Uh, you know, there's a lot of blood loss, maybe even an entire blood volume, and we think about redosing antibiotics due to the fact that we kind of assume the antibiotic that was in the blood, it's now no longer there because we've replaced the blood with, uh, with blood that we've given. So when do we think about redosing antibiotics in the setting of blood loss?
1: So blood loss is the other real consideration in the operating room. The recommendations in the guidelines would be to redose for an estimated blood loss greater than 1,500 mLs. There's a variety of different pieces of evidence out there that would suggest one cutoff or another, but that's probably a reasonable cutoff based on the data that exists, and obviously that's the one that's been recommended in the guidelines, and so we use that institutionally here as well.
0: And so that would be regardless of the antibiotic. So even if you gave vancomycin and an hour later you'd lost two liters of blood, you're going to give vancomy- vancomycin again? Yes.
1: Yeah, so in that situation, we would actually typically redose with a half dose of vancomycin. Um, with cefazolin, with ciprofloxacin, with any of our cephalosporins, really, we would give another full dose. Um the the factor to consider here is to think about the volume of distribution of the drug that you're talking about. Drugs with smaller volumes of distribution will concentrate more in the blood, and so you would expect to lose more drug if you're losing more blood. Uh, vancomycin is a drug that has moderate volume of distribution, so a fair amount of it stays in the blood, a fair amount of it goes elsewhere, and so that's the rationale for the partial redosing of vancomycin.
0: Great, and then What about renal function in this setting? Do you still redose after uh, 1,500 of blood loss or more uh, despite poor renal function?
1: Our recommendation would be yes. There's not a clear recommendation in the guidelines for that, and so it's more of a patient-specific approach. Again, this is another area where if you had a specific concern related to a patient, I would think about two things. One would be think about consulting your pharmacist, and the other would be to think about the drug that you're talking about, and if it's a very forgiving drug like a cephalosporin, go ahead and give your full redose. Don't worry about the renal function in that situation. If we're talking about something like gentamicin or vancomycin, where you're more concerned about associated toxicity toxicities, then it would be a good idea to, to reach out to a pharmacist or an infectious disease provider to get more information.
0: Great. So Andrew, what about postoperatively? This comes up a lot. Our practice here is usually to do about 24 hours of what we call perioperative antibiotics. So they, the p- patients after surgery will get 24 hours of whatever they were getting intraoperatively. Is there any data for that? Is that a good practice? What about when surgical teams want to do it even longer? What do you think about that?
1: So this is a really controversial issue. Uh, A lot of people for a long time have been giving post-operative antibiotics for anywhere from 24 hours to a full week even. As more and more data comes out in this area, there's really not anything to suggest that in the general surgery population, post-operative antibiotics uh, do anything to prevent the risk of surgical site infection. And certainly not post-operative antibiotics beyond 24 hours. So the, the guidelines don't make a firm statement to say don't give post-operative antibiotics, but they do note that there is mounting evidence that suggests there's no benefit. Um, interestingly, the CDC just released some guidelines this year for the prevention of surgical site infection, and so this includes information about antibiotics but also all of the other things that we can do to prevent infection, and those guidelines specifically recommend against any post-operative antibiotic use, regardless of whether we're talking about a clean procedure or a clean contaminated procedure. Again, just pointing to the fact that there's no evidence to really suggest a benefit to giving post-operative antibiotics. If, if you do decide to use them, uh, in, in most cases, post-op antibiotics should be limited to less than 24 hours post-op. Um, but as I suggested, I, I think we're gonna be seeing less and less post-operative antibiotic use as more people are on board with the evidence that exists.
0: Great. And now, what about a case that is fully contaminated? So, you know, there's spillage of stool into the peritoneum. Um, the patient comes out on pressors, you know, hypotensive and, uh, and very uh, inflammatory. Uh, should we be keeping them on antibiotics?
1: So the, the key there, and we see this a lot with the trauma population in particular, if, if the patient has gross spillage but it is adequately controlled quickly, we uh, do a washout, we provide the appropriate prophylactic antibiotics, The evidence would suggest that even in trauma, there is no need to give continued prophylaxis beyond 24 hours in in that case. Uh, In in the case of a patient who you really believe to be infected, that's really where the difference exists. So there is a distinction between patients who are at risk for infection versus those who have actually developed an infection. And so it's important to look at the clinical criteria that you have available for the patient. If you assess that they actually have an infection, then we should be treating them appropriately with broad-spectrum antibiotics.
0: Great. That sounds right to me. Now, what about drains? So this comes up a lot, too, where um, patients will come out, they'll have indwelling drains, and will be asked by the surgeons to please continue antibiotics until the drains are out. What does the evidence tell us?
1: So this is another one where a lot of people have practiced for a long time giving post-operative antibiotics uh, for drains. And there is, there is no evidence that would suggest there's a benefit to doing this. The guidelines are a little more firm on this stance, actually, pointing to the fact that there is no evidence supporting use of antibiotics for the active presence of a drain and recommending against it. Uh, and we see that similarly, similarly in the CDC guidelines from this year as well.
0: Great. That's really interesting. And I think listeners um, can use that when they're discussing with their surgical colleagues uh, what to do for post-operative antibiotics in the setting of a drain that you know really um, share this with them, that there's not a lot of evidence or there's not in fact, and the evidence would suggest that we shouldn't be doing it.
1: The thing about that patient population in particular is they may be at risk for developing infection later on. That's exactly what we're trying to prevent with the drain. And so if they do then go on to develop an infection, you want the antibiotics that you're going to use to be effective, and so making sure that we're not inducing resistance by giving them antibiotics unnecessarily becomes really important.
0: Great, I think that's, that's right on. So let's move and talk about antibiotic selection. How do you decide which perioperative antibiotic to give in preparation for incision in a given case?
1: So the general principle here is to think about which bacteria you're most likely to encounter in the procedure, and then select an agent that can be reasonably expected to cover those bacteria without going overboard, which is really the key. So for most clean procedures, when you're just talking about encountering bacteria on the skin, Staph aureus and coagulase negative staph are the most common organisms that we expect to encounter. And so we'll see that most therapies for those types of procedures are geared at covering for just those particular organisms.
0: Okay. Um, and why, let's say, well, you know, okay, Andrew, I hear you, but, you know, there's a small chance of something else. So why don't we just go big with everybody? Why don't we put everybody on vanxocin miropenum before we make incision?
1: Yeah, so we talk about this in the SICU all the time. Uh, You know, if we wanted to cover everyone completely, then we would start everyone on meropenem, linazolid, and amphotericin when they hit the operating room. But the obvious problems there are, are one, resistance. So we're introducing patients to a variety of medications that they can then. Uh, begin to develop resistance to, or rather their bacteria will begin to develop resistance to. And the other side of that is adverse effects are real. So I think this kind of gets under-discussed in the discussion about appropriate antibiotic use. We talk a lot about resistance, but not as much about adverse effects. But a lot of these drugs have serious consequences to their use. So thinking about the development of clostridium difficile infection, allergic reactions to antibiotics, renal injury, which is becoming more and more of a hot topic, even with things Mm -hmm. like piperacillin, tazobactam. We see QTC prolongation with some of these. So there are a lot of real consequences to using these drugs. And so we have to balance the need for prevention of infection with the concern for resistance and possibility of adverse effects.
0: All right. Great. Now, you mentioned before that, you know, there's institution-specific guidelines, and that's certainly what people should refer to. But give me some general guidance, Uh, maybe just kind of based on what we do here of what we would select for a given procedure and and how we would decide.
1: So when we're talking about clean procedures where we're really only encountering bacteria on the skin, so thinking about cardiac cases, most orthopedic cases, vascular surgery, neurosurgery in most cases, you're really just thinking about those Staphylococcus species, so Staph aureus and coag-negative Staph. So those bacteria live on the skin and we need to make sure that we prevent them from in- infecting the skin once the incision is made. So in most institutions and you, you most commonly see Cefazolin as the workhorse agent for coverage of uh, Staphylococcus infections and prevention of Staphylococcus infections perioperatively uh, because it has great staph coverage. It also has good strep coverage which you can also see on the skin and so it makes it a good choice for that reason. Um, when we think about patients who are undergoing a clean procedure but have a uh, severe beta-lactam allergy, so when we talk about severe allergies, we're talking about hives, anaphylaxis mostly. In those patients, clindamycin and sometimes vancomycin would be the agent to replace cefazolin. Both of those agents still have decent coverage of staphylococcus at most institutions and um, and even some coverage of streptococcus as well. And so those tend to be our, our main agents. I would say clindamycin being more common than, than vancomycin. When we start talking about uh, GI and biliary procedures, you still need to cover for staphylococcus on the skin, but then we're also encountering some additional bacteria when you enter the duodenum, for example. So gram-negative rods and anaerobic bacteria start to become more of a consideration for these procedures. And so in addition to covering the staff with typically Cefazolin still, we recommend using metronidazole as our uh, agent to provide anaerobic coverage. So remembering that Cefazolin, while it does have good gram-positive coverage for those basic gram-positives. It also has decent gram-negative coverage for community-acquired Klebsiella and, and some of the other gram-negative rods that we expect to encounter in the GI tract, E. coli, and that type of thing. And so cefazolin can really do a lot to um, to provide the full coverage that we need for GI and biliary procedures. Um, as, as an aside, we, we used to use cefoxitin and cefotetan a lot for uh, prevention of infection and, and perioperatively. Right, and I remember that. So we've recently switched to cefazolin and metronizol. This was motivated by a few things. Drug shortages have been an issue, and so we really just couldn't get our hands on cefoxitin, cefotetan consistently. But then the other thing that's motivated this is in a few key populations, colorectal being the main one, there's actually been evidence that has emerged that suggests cefazolin pet- Plus metronidazole is a superior regimen to cefoxitin or cefotetan for prevention of surgical site infection. So we've moved that way for colorectal procedures, and we're moving that way for a lot of other uh, GI procedures as well.
0: Okay, now how about the severe uh, beta-lactam allergy in those procedures? What do you do there?
1: So this this one is interesting. You see a variety of different practices, and and this is one that actually gets messed up a number of times too, because people are very used to giving the cefazolin and metronidazole combination and what to do in these penicillin allergic patients uh, can be a little bit confusing. But the recommendation is typically clindamycin still to prevent your staphylococcal infection. It's key to remember that clindamycin has anaerobic coverage. And while while it's not as good as metronidazole, for the purposes of prevention of infection, it's good enough. Um, And so sometimes you'll see combinations such as clindamycin plus metronidazole that's really going overboard on anaerobic coverage, and the real problem with a regimen like that is that you have no gram-negative coverage. Um, and so uh, what, we, what we recommend uh, for these patients with severe beta-lactam allergy is clindamycin plus either an aminoglycoside or a fluoroquinolone. Both are reasonable choices. The main thing that, that drives the decision for most patients is their renal function and level of concern for using aminoglycoside.
0: Okay, and then what about uh, a clean contaminated case?
1: So for our clean contaminated cases, we're still concerned about staph, we're still concerned about strep, and then when you're thinking about the head in particular, oral anaerobes become a concern. So the non frag, bacteroides, Peptostroptococcus, Prevotella, um, those are the key organisms that we're trying to cover from an oral anaerobes standpoint. And so the, the recommendation here is a, a number of different things. We can still use cephazolin and metronidazole. That, that will provide the coverage that you need of those organisms. Another option is ampicillin sulbactam. That provides good anaerobic coverage in addition to good gram-positive and basic gram-negative coverage. And then on the in the patient who is penicillin allergic, clindamycin will provide adequate coverage of all of those things.
0: Great. All right. So we mentioned in there, you were talking about the differences based on allergies. So tell me a little bit more about allergies. We talked about this a little with Rachel too, but what do we, or is does anybody who says I have an allergy to penicillin, we should avoid it? Or how do we think about that?
1: So the decision to use a beta-lactam is uh, largely predicated on how severe their reaction to uh, previous beta-lactam was. And so we think about anaphylaxis as our absolute contraindication to Using a beta lactam and particularly a penicillin um, prophylactically, um, hives are a, a, along a similar severity as anaphylaxis, but not necessarily a complete contraindication to using a beta lactam might be more willing to think about uh, a cephalosporin and somebody who's had a penicillin reaction with hives in the past although in the in the perioperative uh, area we often don't have the full history that we want and so Personally, if I see a hives history, I would treat that as anaphylaxis and just avoid a cephalosporin in that case. Um, And so in in those cases, clindamycin is typically going to be your replacement. The the key here is really getting a good history. When we we have the opportunity to do a clear pre-op history of the patient, that really can be helpful in providing the information we need about the drug that the patient reacted to specifically, and then what their specific reaction was. Um, that's helpful not only in the perioperative period, but thinking about the potential for developing infection down the line, because we know that 2 to 5% of patients will go on to develop infection. It's really key to have that thorough history that helps us know, is it safe to use piperacillin-tazobactam? Is it safe to use cefepime or meropenem in a patient who's had a previous reaction?
0: Great. That's really helpful. So let's talk about, we do a lot, I'm sure a lot of hospitals do, we certainly do nasal testing to find out if patients are colonized with MRSA. If they are, do we do anything differently?
1: So there are a variety of different ways to handle this. Um, Some institutions actually use bacitracin as a way of decolonizing a patient with MRSA who has a history of MRSA. other institutions opt for completely different antibiotic coverage that would include MRSA, and still other institutions would opt for antibiotic coverage just in specific situations. So our practice here, at least, is to use coverage for MRSA, which is typically vancomycin, specifically in the patients who are at higher risk for a infection with MRSA. So if the patient has MRSA colonization and is also having hardware being placed, so think about spinal Uh, fusion patients, total joint replacement patients, patients who are undergoing a bad insertion, those patients who we would be really concerned about the possibility of that hardware getting infected with MRSA, we go ahead and prophylax them with vancomycin in addition to cefazolin for their perioperative prophylaxis.
0: Great. All right. So Andrew, what comes up from time to time is a patient who is already on antibiotics and they come to the OR for an operation And the question is, what do we do with them? Do we just keep them on what they're on? Do we redose what they're on? Or do we give them something new?
1: So it's important to be thoughtful about what they were getting preoperatively. So if the patient has an active infection and they're already on pipercillin, tazobactam, for example, that has great staph coverage, great gram-negative coverage, great anaerobic coverage. And so really, regardless of what procedure you're doing, Piptazo is going to provide great coverage coverage. apart from covering MRSA. And so in, in that patient population who's already getting an active antibiotic that is effective for the bacteria you're concerned about in the procedure, you would not need to give perioperative antibiotics with cefazolin or vancomycin or anything like that. The key, however, is to make sure that the timing of your treatment antibiotics is still adequate um, relative to the, the incision time. So you want to retime active antibiotics to be given within that one hour prior to surgery still. And so with most, most things that are given Q6 hours, Q4 hours, that's relatively easy to do. It can be a little bit trickier if you are talking about vancomycin, which might only be given once a day. And so the recommendation typically with vancomycin is if you are within eight hours of the previous dose, then you don't need to redose vancomycin in that case. If it's been more than eight hours since the previous dose, then go ahead and redose with a half dose of vancomycin to ensure adequate concentrations at the time of the operation.
0: Great, and so let's say I have somebody who's on Piptazo, Pipercilin-Tazobactam, or zocin, and they are on Q6-hour dosing, they got a dose two hours ago, now they come to the operating room, should I give them a new dose?
1: So in in that patient, I would be comfortable giving them a new dose. You would probably get a variety of recommendations, in all honesty, about how to handle that. But because Piptazo is, again, forgiving from a therapeutic index standpoint, I would go ahead and give another dose so that you're ensuring adequate concentration. The exception might be in a patient with really poor renal function who were just doing Q8-hour dosing of Piptazo. I might have a different thought in that specific patient. But most of the time, yes, you could go ahead and give another dose then.
0: Okay, great. Let's move on to trauma. What do we do about antibiotic prophylaxis in trauma patients?
1: So trauma is is an interesting category because in in most ways it's similar to general surgery prophylaxis, but there are a couple key differences. Uh, So there there are two main groups of injuries that I think about as requiring special thought regarding their prophylaxis. One is penetrating abdominal injury. And so there are guidelines about antibiotic prophylaxis in penetrating abdominal injury from east. Uh, the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. And so the key thought with penetrating abdominal injury is that you need to assume bowel perforation has occurred until proven otherwise. So if someone presents with a knife stab wound to the abdomen and it is of sufficient depth to be concerned about perforation of of a bowel, you want to make sure that you're covering not just for the staff on the skin, but also for the gram-negatives and the anaerobes that would be in the bowel just as you would if you were doing a normal operation on the bowel. So the recommendation here is to give a dose of cefazolin plus metronidazole or cefoxitin or cefotetan. We use the cefazolin-metronidazole combination here in our trauma bay. Uh, We give that on presentation in the trauma bay, or if they're moving quickly to the OR, we give it when they arrive in the OR. Um, and so that, that's that's the recommendation is the initial approach. If once the patient is opened up and it's determined that there is no perforation of the bowel, then it's okay to give normal cefazolin prophylaxis at that point. But the initial assumption should be that there is a bowel perforation until proven otherwise.
0: Okay. Does it, does it matter at all if there's introduction of foreign material? I mean, let's say someone uh, had, you know, a stab wound or multiple stab wounds and then had dirt or you know rusty metal or something that somehow got in there? Does that affect uh, the antibiotics we would give?
1: It really doesn't. So it is, as long as the patient presents relatively soon after their injury, uh, we would prophylax them regardless of how the injury occurred. You could make an argument that in a patient who had penetrating abdominal trauma that occurred as a farm injury, uh, that you might consider clostridial coverage. And so, and that and that has to do with the um, fecal matter from manure in the in the soil. And so in those patients, if you have a regimen like cefazolin that doesn't provide good clostridial coverage, we would actually consider adding penicillin for that. That's not something you'd find in the guidelines, but that's more of a, a thoughtful approach to the type of injury. In most cases, you're not going to have to do anything special based on uh, how exactly the penetrating injury occurred.
0: Great. That's really interesting. So now what about a patient who comes in with penetrating abdominal trauma and ends up Uh, having their abdomen remain open. Do they need to stay on antibiotics?
1: So this is another really controversial area. The data really doesn't provide much information as to what is the right choice here. And so a variety of ways to think about it. In general, I would say there is not a need to provide antibiotic coverage to those patients. However, um, you could make an argument that because these wounds remain open, in the ICU, they they are at risk for nosocomial infection, and so there is an argument to be made uh, to provide ongoing coverage in that case. I think because the data are not clear, there's really not a a strong reason to fall on either side of this, and the guidelines, the EAST guidelines, make that same statement. Okay,
0: and does it matter when the trauma occurred in terms of what you're gonna do about antibiotics?
1: It does, so for those early presenting injuries, They are quickly controlled in the OR, washed out, provided with the appropriate antibiotic prophylaxis, and there's no reason to suspect that they would be um, infected beyond, beyond that point. However, in those patients who have their injury, go home, perhaps spend a couple of days with their penetrating injury, and then present to the hospital with signs of an active intra-abdominal infection, that's really a separate category of patient. In that case, you're treating an infection that already exists. And so rather than starting with antibiotic prophylaxis, we would start with appropriate treatment for intra-abdominal infection. So it is important to make that distinction because we do occasionally see these patients who present much later after their injuries.
0: Great. Now, how about open fractures? We hear about this a lot. Open fracture definitely needs antibiotics. How do we decide if they do, and if so, what to use?
1: So, open fracture is an area where there's really been a fair amount of research, and it's an interesting topic. The decisions surrounding antibiotic choice in open fracture have everything to do with the severity of the injury. So, open fractures fall under the Gustilo type classification for severity, um, and so. An orthopedic surgeon typically provides the gastillo-type class for the uh, injury that the patient presents with. However, you can reasonably do an assessment of the gastillo class yourself by simply looking at the size of the wound and the extensiveness of the soft tissue injury. So, gastillo types vary between types 1 up to types 3. From an antibiotic treatment decision standpoint, you really just have to differentiate between what is type 3 and what is not type 3. So, types 1 and 2 are both injuries that involve a wound that is less than 10 centimeters, and they have non-extensive soft tissue injury, which really isn't defined clearly, but. Uh, the the injury is is non-extensive. So with with this type of injury, you only need to provide cefazolin as your antibiotic coverage. And again, you're just thinking about the staphylococcus and possibly streptococcus that is on the skin. In patients with severe beta-lactam allergy, we would switch from cefazolin to clindamycin as we previously discussed. Now the interesting thing is that research suggests in type 3 injury, there is an increased incidence of gram-negative infection. And so this doesn't make a lot of sense at first glance, especially in light of everything we've been talking about with think about what bacteria you're encountering on the way to do your surgery or in a given injury, where would a gram negative really become involved in an open fracture? So the the postulation here is really that in these patients with type three injury, because it takes a longer amount of time to do the full repair of the wound, the wound may remain open in the hospital for a number of days, they become exposed to these nosocomial bugs And so we we see this higher incidence of gram-negative infection in type 3 injury, mainly because uh, these patients have their wounds open for a longer amount of time. So the type 3 injury, just to make sure we've defined it, is a wound that's greater than 10 centimeters or has extensive soft tissue injury. And so in in these cases, because of the higher incidence of gram-negative infection, there's some research that suggests adding genomycin actually significantly reduces the development of surgical site infection as compared to regimens such as cefazolin
0: by itself. Great. So we're going to add gentamicin to either cefazolin or clindamycin for a type 3. And then any difference in the duration of therapy? So
1: for types 1 and 2, our duration can be limited to 24 hours post-op, so very similar to all other procedures. For type 3, the suggestion from the EAST guidelines for open fracture is to prophylax for either 72 hours post-op or 24 hours post full closure of the wound. It's not really definitive in the guidelines which you should choose between those two if if both apply. Um, I, I think based on the mechanism for how we think these become infected by remaining open, we tend to follow the 24 hour post closure rule. So once the wound is closed, we begin the count on how long antibiotics are going to stay on. Great.
0: And then as you mentioned, if you think it's farm related, Or if it is farm-related, you would then add penicillin. If you were only on cefazolin, if you were on clindamycin, you would not need to add penicillin.
1: That's right, and that's because clindamycin has adequate coverage of clostridium by itself.
0: Great. All right. What about penetrating head trauma? Is that any different?
1: So people worry a lot about penetrating head trauma for, for good reason. Anytime you're talking about the brain, there's reason to be concerned. But really, in terms of prophylactic antibiotic coverage, our thought shouldn't be any different with the head. And so this is still an open fracture. We should still treat it as we usually would. A lot of times you'll see an urgency to start vancomycin and cefepime in these patients with an open head injury. The the concern there is that while they may be at risk for infection, if they do later go on to develop meningitis, for example, uh, you're going to need your vancomycin and your cefepime to be effective because our choice of agents is pretty limited for meningitis. You need drugs that can adequately penetrate the CNS, and so um, you don't want to spend our drugs that are going to adequately treat those infections up front. In reality, the evidence would suggest that even in head injury, cefazolin or a combination of cefazolin plus genomycin would be a reasonable choice for for adequate co- coverage empirically, and we wouldn't do anything differently in terms of uh, treating beyond 24 hours.
0: Great, that's a really important point. Um, and then what if you have sinus involvement?
1: So, particularly if, there, if there's sinus involvement, nasal sinus involvement, we would consider using ceftriaxone or ampicillin sulbactam. And again, we're thinking about oral anaerobes in that case and how do we best cover those. And those agents are probably reasonable alternatives given their better coverage of, of oral anaerobes.
0: Great. So, Andrew, it's really interesting. As, you, as you've been talking, you know, I've noticed and pointed out some of the places where we don't necessarily follow best practices, like anything in medicine, but certainly here. And so I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on how could we be better? How could we be better about following evidence-based guidelines when it comes to surgical prophylaxis? So I think
1: the key here is to have protocols. The more and more that we can standardize all of these processes, the less we're going to see opportunity for error. Um, in the process. And so, as the guidelines would suggest, local protocols, local evaluation of antibiograms is really key in uh, making sure that we're making the right decision for our right patient every time. Um, and so, I, we really encourage a lot of development of institutional charts and guidelines that are easily available to clinicians at the point of decision. So, thinking about things like antibiotic guidelines posted in the OR or by automated dispensing cabinets. Antibiotics guidelines that are widely available, perhaps built into your electronic medical record. You really want to make these tools available for clinicians at the point that they're going to be using them. And using your own institutional information to develop these guidelines is is key.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think when you are working on developing those guidelines, you want to make sure you bring in your surgical colleagues, right? You want everybody at the table. You want your pharmacists, of course. You want your anesthesiologist, you want your surgeons, you want your infectious disease docs, but you really want everybody there because it's a lot easier to say to a surgeon, hey, you know, we actually aren't going to continue those antibiotics because the drain's in, and that's what your group decided they wanted, right? That's a little more effective than saying... I don't want to continue it because that's what the evidence says, and the surgeon says, well, I've been doing it that way for 40 years, so I think we're going to keep doing it. It's nice to be able to say, you know, it's not just me. It's the whole group here, including all your colleagues who felt like the evidence was pretty clear here.
1: I absolutely agree. As with many things in medicine, that that collaborative approach is really important, Um, A, to make the right decision in the first place, but also to have buy-in from all of the key parties. And so I completely agree. This should be a team effort with all the different involved specialties playing a role in the decision-making.
0: Great. Andrew, any last things that we didn't cover before we wrap up? I think
1: we covered it pretty well. Thanks again for the opportunity to be on here, Jed.
0: Thanks for coming on the show. All right. That was fantastic. Andrew is really just an amazing pharmacist. And, you know, I can't tell you how valuable it is to have Andrew or in an our other unit, Rachel, rounding with us. And they do. They actually join us on rounds It's incredibly valuable. If you work in an ICU and you don't have a pharmacist joining you on rounds, I would urge you to really uh, see if you can get them. If you have a pharmacist, see if you can convince them to round with you. It's really, really helpful to have them and their input uh, as part of the team. All right, that is it for today. Go check out the website, acrac.com, A-C-C-R-A-C.com. You can see this episode and all the others. You can leave a comment that anyone can see so we can all learn from your experience and tell us, what do you do at your institution? Do you use one gram of cefazolin or two? Do you have a pharmacist round with you or not? What differs that you think is important for everyone to know? Of course, you can also get a hold of me at acrac at acrac.com. And if you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes, finding the show, and leaving a comment and a rating. It's really helpful for other people who are looking for an anesthesia or critical care related podcast to find this one in their search results. Also, if you are interested in helping support the making of the show, we would love to have you check out patreon.com slash ACRAC, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. And even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This will be the last episode before Halloween, so have a great time on Halloween. I know my kids are super excited. My oldest is going as Wonder Woman, and my youngest as Belle. I hope that all of you, whether you have kids or not, have a fantastic Halloween. All right. For the ACRAC Podcast and Andrew Jarrell, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.
1: Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com.